So um, I will now um, give the floor to Derek, please, uh, to present his uh, result. Thanks, Marie. So Marie has uh, set me a challenge. She clearly doesn't think I can do this in 20 minutes. <laughs> My money's on Marie, actually. I think she's probably right. Uh, so yeah, uh, this, this project is called Advancing Research on Nutrition and Agriculture. Policy was never in the title, but was very much in the original proposal. And uh, one of our goals today is to talk a little bit more about the policy relevance of ARENA findings. I thought I'd give a few key takeaway messages uh, for those losing concentration early. I would be one of those if I was in the audience, probably. Um, so the first is sort of a rationale. Global spatial systemic analyses reveal linkages between agriculture and nutrition that conventional experiments, such as randomized control trials, um, generally do not reveal. So we're not saying get rid of RCTs. This is a complement to RCTs, but there are some things we need to uh, take a much more systemic analysis to understand. Second, an important finding, large sustained improvements in diet quality require income, gro income growth, we know that, and improved knowledge, we know that too, but also making nutritious foods cheaper. And this wasn't actually that obvious, uh, at least among economists, prior to ARENA. Third, investments in generic farm productivity drive rural income growth, so that's a traditional rationale for agricultural investments. But nutrition improvements also require investing in nutrient-rich food sectors, since many are highly perishable and not easily traded. Fourth, we can use trade to import less perishable nutrient-rich foods, such as chicken, which is now happening a lot, a lot of imports of uh, chicken in Africa and other places. And then we can also use trade to, uh, for those sectors, but allow the domestic economy to focus on perishables or sectors where we, the country has a comparative advantage. Fifth, we need to move a little bit beyond a consumer-oriented food safety approach to also think about the hazards that agricultural production poses for nutrition, and we may only have touched the tip of the iceberg there. So as Marie said, ARENA is a three-year project funded by the, the Gates Foundation and A4NH. Phase two is now underway. And the rationale for ARENA stemmed from a serious knowledge gap. Most of the evidence on agriculture and nutrition, as Marie alluded to, is based on small-scale quote-unquote call them homestead food production projects, trying to get people to produce homestead gardens, produce more livestock. And many of those projects come with uh, behavioral change communications, trying to improve nutritional knowledge. Some of that evidence has been uh, subject to critique, um, not just by economists, but by those uh, reviewing this literature. Uh, many of the projects are small. Many of the sample sizes are small. It's often quite difficult to look at things like stunting with small sample sizes. They've been confined to rural food-producing households, but we all eat food, and we certainly care about uh, the non-farm sector and urban consumers. Uh, there are serious concerns over sustainability and scalability, and that's certainly true of behavioral change, not just in development, but in, but in other areas. There's, in the broader literature, there's now concerns that behavioral change interventions may be hard to sustain. Uh, there were no government-led projects in any of these reviews. They were nearly all led by NGOs. And this is also, this literature is confined to investments in nutrient-rich foods. And of course, that makes sense. We want people to diversify the diets. But we also want to understand whether staple foods, which is where the global agricultural system has invested most of its funds, whether they have an impact on nutrition. So do our investments in rice, maize, uh, uh, wheat, etc., and cassava have impacts on child nutrition? And we also don't know too much about the cost-effectiveness of these projects, certainly whether they can be cost-effectively scaled up. Lastly, strangely enough, there's, in this literature, there's very little incorporation of markets. 
Um, and yet we know from research over the last few years that even in poor remote rural areas, people get much of their food, usually most of their food, from markets. In contrast, the traditional economic rationales for agricultural investments are based on large-scale public investments. So this has been the bread and butter of IFPRI and the CGIR for 40, 50 years, the Green Revolution in maize, wheat, rice, and large-scale food policies, marketing policies, <coughs> input policies, etc. Most of that literature has looked at the income and calorie effects for both producers and consumers, so not just focusing on food producers. Uh, Sustainability of investments, there's a large literature on the environmental sustainability of those investments, but also um, whether the benefits are sustained over time. And most of that literature has focused on those food staples, generally looking at income effects, sometimes at calorie effects. They're all investments in calorie-dense foods. So in a nutshell, these two literatures are almost polar opposites. And ARENA sought to sort of marry these two literatures, to take some of the techniques uh, from this largely economics-based literature on large-scale investments and apply them uh, to nutrition. And that includes both micro and macro tools, and really looking, as Marie said, at the dietary and nutritional impacts of a wide range of agricultural activities, investments, and policies. ARENA's geography and toolkit. Um, our focus was global, or the global south, <coughs> Uh, but particularly South Asia and Africa, where most of the undernutrition burden still falls. We had some extra focus on uh, Gates focal countries, particularly Ethiopia and Bangladesh, where Ifpri has a strong presence. We had four basic components to this toolkit. One was the well-known demographic and health survey data, but we linked this to a wide range of geographic information systems data on infrastructure, agroecology, and agricultural production. We have a huge data set there, 60 countries, nutritional data on over 1 million kids, and dietary data that we worked hard on for some 300,000 children. We use other economic and agricultural surveys, often with a little bit more information on production and marketing. We use consumer price surveys. Prices are a great way to understand how markets work or don't work. And finally, we use economy-wide simulation models that have been applied to evaluating green revolution investments, etc., but mostly in the past on poverty. So a major technical challenge in this project was to try and uh, get these models to work more on dietary impacts of different agricultural investments. The team, I'll flick over this quickly, a bulk of, uh, a large bulk of microeconometricians um, who also dabble in macro, in, nominally, we had a sole nutritionist, but we worked with a lot of other nutrition um, projects in NIFRI, including Alive and Thrive. Uh, we've got a macro modeling team, several here in the room, and James will speak afterwards, and some GIS specialists as well. We think of a sort of framework for thinking about agriculture and nutrition. There's a lot of frameworks out there, and they look at different pathways. Um, this sort of tries to sort of complete a cycle of thinking uh, more systematically about nutrition and agriculture. We start with sort of what we call agri-food biology. Of course, there's a biology um, uh, linking diets to nutrition outcomes, but we're also interested in how agriculture interacts with that. So Will, I think, coined this term agri-food biology. Um, then we turn to food acceptability. Are foods acceptable, um, particularly to mothers who mostly are in charge of um, feeding young children? We don't look at that a lot in ARENA, but we mention it here for completeness. Uh, food affordability. Um, we can think about two dimensions here, sort of the basic income constraint, the ratio of income to food prices, but also we're going to talk about a measure which is the ratio of non-staple food prices to staple food prices. 
And then we can think about food accessibility, the spatiality and seasonality of food markets, how value chains work, how infrastructure connects consumers to markets, agroecology shapes what people produce and therefore what they eat. And then food safety, and these two dimensions here, safe to consume foods but also safe to produce foods. ARENA isn't a biology project, but experimental evidence on diets in less developed countries is quite limited. You'll actually find the surprisingly few in uh, experiments where people have treated children with a certain food or diet. There's still debates around which nutrients constrain child growth, so there's an ongoing sort of protein quality debate that's been, been reinvigorated recently. And we also know that production and consumption of food can uh, influence nutrition. Economics has historically been a very calorie fundamentalist um, uh, science with respect to nutrition. The Green Revolution in the 1960s coincided with a shift in nutrition thinking away from protein deficiency to calories as a limiting nutrient. And economic research showed that Green Revolution technologies reduced poverty and improved calorie availability at household and national levels. But what about child nutrition outcomes? What impact did the Green Revolution have on child nutrition? We actually really don't know. We found no previous evidence from the 1960s and 70s, so we looked at Bangladesh as a late Green Revolution success story. Yields in Bangladesh, rice yields grew by 70% over 1996 to 2011 on the back of high yielding varieties and irrigation. We constructed a synthetic district panel to do this using five rounds of demographic health sur survey data and ag sample survey data on rice yields. What did we find? We found that growth in rice yields in Bangladeshi districts had significant associations with child weight gain, but not with linear growth. And we tortured the data as much as you could want to try and find an impact, but we, we, we couldn't seem to find an impact on stunting. The impacts on weight gain were fairly sizable um, and encouraging because Bangladesh is a country with uh, very high rates of uh, wasting. And then we tried to dig into this. What were the mechanisms linking uh, growth in uh, rice yields to wasting, but minimally to, to stunting. Well, what we found is that there was a very strong association between growth in rice yields and the intake of complementary foods in the six to nine month window. Um, so it seemed like with greater production of rice, greater productivity in rice production, children, uh, parents were feeding their children earlier, but this was mostly rice. We found no impact of rice yields on minimum dietary diversity or dairy consumption, even though these were associated with uh, stunting. So it was hard to find an impact of productivity growth in staples on stunting. We think this may mean that green revolutions in staple cereals are not sufficient to rapidly improve diets. We know that dietary diversi diversification is key, including protein-rich animal source foods. To answer this, we looked at the demographic health survey data on uh, children's diets and tried to uh, eventually link it to stunting. So, this figure tells us what did 122,000 young children eat uh, in the 24 hours uh, prior to yesterday. I only want to highlight um, a few things there. The dietary patterns that the children have are really interesting. Uh, dairy consumption is really low in sub-Saharan Africa and much of Asia. Fish consumption is exceptionally high, so fish is the most important animal source food in sub-Saharan Africa for young children. And that's very unusual to the traditional Western diets. We tried to look at how these diets relate to stunting. These are only associations, um, but we tried to sort of minimize the biases that uh, might affect these regressions. So these are showing declines in stunting from any animal source food. 
But what's really striking, even for children not achieving the, the official minimum dietary diversity threshold, animal source foods uh, seem very beneficial. They'll reduce stunting, even for children who otherwise have poor diets. So we still want broad-based dietary diversification, but improving the intake of protein and micronutrient-rich animal source foods is critical for stunting reduction. We also found fruit consumption was associated with child growth, not shown here. So why are diets so poor in developing countries? Well, the straightforward economics answer is poor people are poor. They can't afford um, to buy more food, more of the foods that might be nutritious. A sort of simplistic nutritionist answer uh, would be that nutritional knowledge, empowerment is poor. Um, so people, parents don't know that giving micronutrient-rich foods is important. Perhaps both are true, but neither necessarily imply any special role for agriculture. If it's just income, then you should invest in any sector that maximises income. So we tried to ask, could high relative prices present an additional constraint? Various questions or corollaries of this. Do relative prices dictate specific pathways of diet diversification? Are some foods more or less expensive in low-income countries? And to capture this, we come up with a novel measure of relative prices. This is the ratio of one calorie of a given food, a non-staple food, such as eggs, to one calorie of the cheapest cereal in any country. The motivations for this, well, poor people care about calories. Hunger is a very strong motivator. And people think about the calorie content of foods. Cereals are a universally important calorie-dense staple. And cereals are highly tradable, so prices are going to be more influenced by international productivity relative to perishable non-staples. So this table is showing you the prices of various nutritionally important foods um, by region. We see that for roots and tubers, unsurprisingly, there's not much price variation. Roots and tubers are a cheap source of calories um, in every continent relative to cereals. Legumes, somewhat true as well, a little bit more expensive in poorer countries, but basically affordable. Fresh cow's milk, very expensive in Africa in particular, relatively affordable in, in South and Central Asia, but that tells you that dairy productivity is likely much, much lower in, in poorer countries as you would expect. However, processed milk, which is more tradable, certainly more affordable, but there's a question mark over whether in countries such as Africa, whether we can get substantial increases in consumption of processed cow's milk. And then chicken eggs, perhaps the least tradable good, uh, given how perishable they are, very expensive. So an egg in sub-Saharan Africa costs nine to ten times as much as a staple cereal in, cal in calorie terms. Uh, meat and fish, a little bit more tradable. Salted and dried fish is a big trade in uh, sub-Saharan Africa and much of Asia. And that explains, I think, why fish consumption is relatively high in, in Africa and large parts of Asia. And then fortified baby cereals, which are potentially a substitute for animal source foods and other micronutrient-rich foods, extremely expensive in, in poor countries and really not an option for your average consumer. We also, in another paper, link these relative prices to consumption among children. So you might think, oh, can, Food consumption among children is not about economics per se, it's about parental knowledge, but in fact we find that prices are very strongly associated with consumption. This is just an egg example, I could give others. So halving the relative price of eggs, you know, moving from 10 in sub-Saharan Africa to 5, like you would see in South Asia, would predict a 15-point increase in egg consumption. And the usual other factors, wealth, urbanization, uh, matter as well, but clearly reducing prices seems to be an important pathway for, for nutrition-sensitive agriculture. 
So poor people basically face a double economic burden. They, they're poor to begin with, and they also face high prices in their economies. Why are nutrient-rich foods so expensive? Many of them are highly perishable, difficult to trade long distances, so we can produce eggs very cheaply in the United States. We can't export them to Africa, as fresh eggs at least. Limited trade means relative prices are largely set by local productivity levels, and productivity is low in poor countries by definition. And backyard poultry, for example, is very widespread, but people don't eat eggs. So in, in Burkina Faso, 90% of rural households own chickens. Two or three percent of those the kids in those households ate eggs yesterday. Egg prices are lower when poultry is commercialized, and that's not necessarily true of other sectors, but certainly seems like there's large economies of scale in poultry production. This is egg prices and chickens in intensive systems, and you see that prices really go down in more intensive commercialized systems. There's also a negative link, if anything, between egg intake and chicken ownership. Agri-food safety. Are there other nutritional benefits from commercialization of sectors such as poultry? We know that food safe for safety eventually improves with commercial commercialization, but not necessarily in the short term. For example, dairy contamination is a big problem in sort of nascent commercialized systems. We know that agri-food safety is a, is a big issue. Uh, there's uh, papers, several papers, not, for, not just from ARENA, on exposure to chemical inputs, people misusing fertilizer and pesticides. In ARENA, we focused on an unusual hazard, which is children's exposure to livestock feces. The SHINE project in Zimbabwe found that young children were consuming dirt. They sit, sit around and watched young children day after day. They found children consuming dirt and directly ingesting chicken feces loaded with uh, harmful bacteria. So they predicted impacts on diarrhea and environmental enteropathy, chronic gut damage, but potentially also respiratory infections from um, uh, close proximity to birds. This is a really major concern. People often chuckle when I mention this initially, but poultry, of course, are the most widely owned livestock in the developing world. I mentioned Burkina Faso, where 90% of rural people own chickens. Half of all Africans uh, own, own, uh, rural Africans own chickens, and it's still very high ownership in many countries. So we had two papers looking at this. In rural Ethiopia, we looked at livestock ownership and the amount of households that uh, kept livestock in the main household dwelling overnight. And half of households owned poultry, another half of those kept poultry in the household where children slept and ate, etc. In another study, we looked at our spot checks of animal feces. We found animal feces in 40% of household compounds in all three countries. Human feces were only in 1 to 16% of households. So no surprise, animal open defecation is more common than human open defecation. In Ethiopia, we found that owning poultry seems beneficial, but when we disaggregated by uh, people who kept poultry in the house and outside of the house, we found that keeping poultry in the house basically cancelled out the, the benefits of uh, owning poultry. And the other study, we looked at um, whether animal feces was associated with child growth. It had negative associations in Bangladesh and Ethiopia, but not in Vietnam. So going back to the cycle, I've sort of taken you around the, this whirlwind tour of ARENA here. There's plenty of other research that I didn't mention. I'd be happy to discuss afterwards. Just closing on some major findings, agri-food biology. Calories likely still a very important constraint in the developing world, but declining whereas poor dietary diversity and low intake of animal source food are still major nutritional constraints. It's critical to educate policymakers on the importance of dietary diversity. I'm sure many people in the room have had discussions on nutrition with people in finance, ministries, etc. 
uh, who still think about food security as basic calorie security, and we need to get policymakers to move beyond that. Food affordability and accessibility, animal source foods are very expensive in poor countries. Uh, it's a constraint specific to the food economy, so it therefore provides a strong rationale for nutrition sensitive agricultural policies. Reducing prices of nutrient rich foods should arguably be the top priority for agriculture. And through that lens, many ag nutrition projects maybe are too small and too local to really affect uh, national prices, even if they do have some impact on local prices. Commercialization will be essential to increase productivity, in, at least in some sectors, uh, certainly poultry where there seem to be large economies of scale. And then trade policies can be important. Uh, Channing Arndt, who's in the room, uh, worked on a paper with Kuao Andam called Eggs Before Chickens, great paper in Ghana, uh, suggesting that uh, countries like Ghana could import chicken meat and focus domestic production on eggs since they're so perishable and uh, non-tradable. And then on food safety, agriculture is a ha hazardous business, often invisibly so. Uh, we need to integrate animal husbandry issues into conventional wash interventions, such as community-led total sanitation, and integrate health issues into agricultural R&D and, ex and uh, agricultural extension as well. A uh, quick advertisement for where we're going with this for Arena 2. Uh, we're now trying to not just look at the importance of animal source foods, but how we can uh, increase intake of animal source foods uh, through large-scale investments and trade strategies. We're going to look more at farming systems and markets. We still don't understand enough about how markets actually work to deliver or not deliver nutritious foods. And we're going to focus a little bit more on structural transformation in nutrition, on how agricultural livelihoods and transitions out of agriculture influence diets and nutrition outcomes. Thank you. Marie was right. I'm one minute, 12 seconds behind. <laughs> Pretty close.